Welcome to Bitchy History, the American history podcast that would really like to remind men that before we had no-fault divorce, women had aquatifana and really well-fertilized rose bushes, and we can always bring that back. Welcome back to Bitchy History. We're now on episode six, in case you're keeping count. In case you haven't noticed, America is kind of going through it right now when it comes to issues of the rights of women, people of color, the LGBTQ plus community, basically just anyone that isn't a straight white male. A couple of weeks ago on this show, we delved into the history of abortion laws in America, but now I'd like to talk about something related, no-fault divorce and how it relates to women's right to autonomy. But first, let's define what we're talking about. No-fault divorce is the ending of a marriage that does not require a showing of wrongdoing by either party. California was the first U.S. state to enact a no-fault divorce law. It was signed into law by Governor Ronald Reagan and went into effect in 1970. Prior to this, divorce was much harder to get. A divorce could only be obtained if you could show the fault of one and only one party in the marriage. This meant that one spouse needed to plead that the other committed adultery, abandonment, a felony, or some other act that violated their marriage. However, simply pleading that wasn't enough. The guilty spouse could plead innocence, or they could claim that the complaining spouse also violated their marriage vows. If a judge accepted that, they could deny the divorce, meaning that regardless of your wish, a judge held the ultimate control over your legal status as a married person. That very nearly happens in this scene from the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And I see no indication that Mr. Joel Maisel is contesting this. That's right, Your Honor. I asked for silence. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I'm Mr. Maisel, and I was just sorry about the tie. Mr. Maisel? You're the husband? I am, yes. What are you doing here? Are you contesting? No, sir, I'm not contesting. Then why are you here? Just moral support for my wife. Well, she divorces you. That's right. For adultery. That's right. It's very modern. Almost French. But now, all this seems a little less straightforward. Your Honor, the arrangement between Mr. and Mrs. Maisel is completely amicable. Well, that'll be a first. Well, they are ready to move forward. Uh, I'm not so sure of that. The couple before you, they were at each other's throats. That's the norm. It seems like the two of you are something different, and I want to make sure you're not making a mistake here. Now, in this case, she's granted the divorce, but the judge is confused and perplexed that they would want a divorce when they clearly don't have any ill will toward one another. He just as easily could have decided that their claim for divorce was not valid. Which is kind of infuriating, right? The idea that a judge or your former partner could make it nearly impossible to legally extricate yourself from a legal contract based on, I don't know, the vibe of your interaction with your spouse or something along those lines. It's totally absurd. And you have to keep in mind that depending on the situation, anything from one spouse having a better education in finances or having an in with the local courts or judge could trap a partner in a relationship. This can still be a problem now when we do have no-fault divorce, but it was a much larger problem in the years prior to that. Consider this quote from a 2010 debate over legalizing no-fault divorce in New York. Yes, they didn't have no-fault divorce in New York State until 2010. Let that sink in while I read this from lawyer L.M. Fenton. Imagine an abusive marriage in 1968 when the court-savvy abuser could actually force the victim to stay in the relationship forever. Imagine that now, and you know why domestic violence attorneys are in full support of introducing no-fault divorce to New York. And the judges aren't the only problem. I've practiced in two states with radically different no-fault laws, and I can tell you how many times I've told a controlling, psychologically abusive spouse, no, Mr. Jones, you can't make her stay married to you if she doesn't want to be. 
Fault-based grounds usually include mental cruelty, but true mental cruelty has a psychological component that can make it very difficult for the abused spouse to articulate that abuse. More to the point, the abused spouse may be terrified to describe the relationship on paper and testify about it in court. Of course, no-fault divorce doesn't just benefit women. Men also benefit from this legal system, which is actually why some feminist groups like now have opposed it in the past. So why am I setting this up as a discussion of women's autonomy? Well, the reason is that issues like no-fault divorce, abortion access, birth control access, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, Equal Employment Opportunity Act, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, and many others were part of an era of legal decisions starting in the 1960s and 1970s, which were meant to reverse some of these systemic equalities in our government that favored men over women. They legally gave women autonomy. The right to autonomy is all about a person's ability to make his or her own rules in life and to make decisions independently. Prior to these second-wave feminist legal changes, women faced a system which did not grant them equality in their day-to-day life. Men were always at the top of the heap, and women were expected to clean up after them, mind the children, and have a nice dinner ready at the end of the day. And that social expectation was enforced by an entire system which prioritized men in the legal and financial world. And that preference has been baked into our culture since long before the United States even existed. So today I want to visit the history of women's autonomy in American history. So maybe we can understand how no-fault divorce being the focus of attack fits into the overall culture war that's coming from conservatives in America today. To start out, we're going to look all the way back to English common law, just like we did in episode two with the history of abortion. In this case, we're looking at a legal doctrine known as coverture. Coverture was a legal fiction that declared that after marriage, man and wife were legally one person, with the husband acting as a representative for both. After marriage, a woman became a femme covert, a covered woman, wearing the shadow of her husband's legal existence. Femme coverts were unable to convey property, sign a contract, or execute a will on their own. Only women who were never married or were now widowed could take on the role of femme sole and be allowed to engage in legal transactions. Married women gave up their legal identity and merged with their husband's legal existence and gave up her name, hence the old-fashioned practice of introducing the bride and groom at the end of a marriage ceremony as, may I present you Mr. and Mrs. John Smith, as if the woman's identity no longer exists, because legally, it didn't. Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England goes into an extensive explanation of this concept and what it entailed legally. By marriage, the husband and wife are one person in law. That is, the very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage, or at least is incorporated and consolidated into that of the husband, under whose wing, protection, and cover she performs everything. It is said to be under the protection and influence of her husband, her baron, her, her or her lord, and her condition during her marriage is called her coverture. The husband, also by the old law, might give his wife moderate correction, for as he is to answer for his misbehavior, the law thought it reasonable to entrust him with the power of restraining her by domestic chastisement in the same moderation that a man is allowed to correct his servants or children, for whom the master or parent is also liable in some cases. If the wife be injured in her person or her property, she can bring no action for redress without her husband's concurrence, and in his name as well as her own, neither can she be sued without making her husband a defendant. In criminal prosecutions, it is true the wife may be indicted and punished separately, but in trials of any sort, they are not allowed to be evidence for or against each other, partly because it is impossible their testimony should be indifferent, but principally because of the union of person." As you can see, there's another piece of modern legality based on this, the concept of spousal immunity. 
Only today, that spousal immunity says only that spouses cannot be compelled to testify, whereas under coverture, neither spouse was allowed to testify because of the legal fiction that they were the same person and therefore could not legally offer testimony that contradicted their spouse. This would inevitably create a bias against women, especially if they were seeking to accuse their husband of adultery or abuse. And it's not only in English law that this concept exists. If you watch the 2021 Ridley Scott film The Last Duel, which is based on a real legal case in 14th century France, you'll catch this reference in one section. Shall I intend to speak the truth? I will not be silent. I have no legal standing without your support. And you shall have it. This makes sense when we realize the concept of coverture developed in England in the high and late Middle Ages as part of the common law system imposed following the Norman Conquest in 1066. Spanish law differed quite a bit on how women's autonomy and legal personhood was dealt with, but for the sake of this show being about the origins of what's happening in America today, we will be sticking with English common law on this topic. We see this legal bias in other areas as well. Under English law from 1351 to 1828, a woman accused of killing her husband was liable to be indicted, not for willful murder, but for the aggravated offense of petty treason, and until 1790, she faced public execution by burning if convicted. As Thomas Hobbes put it, the family unit functioned as a little monarchy in which the husband and father was the sovereign. As you might imagine, divorce was exceedingly rare in English society in the years prior to the American Revolution. In England, it wouldn't be until the Matrimonial Causes Act of 1857 that divorce became at all accessible for the majority of people. And even then, men were able to petition the court for divorce on the basis of their wife's adultery, while women who wanted to divorce their husband needed to prove an aggravating factor of the adultery, such as rape or incest. Divorce proceedings were held in open court, and it was a highly scandalous affair, with all the couple's dirty secrets being aired for anyone who attended, or anyone who read the papers if the couple was important enough to justify that kind of attention. But that's in the 1850s, and that's well after America was formed, so let's move away from England and get back to American views on women's autonomy. American law, as I've mentioned before, was very much based on English common law, meaning that coverture was still practiced in the colonies. If you've ever studied Abigail Adams in your history classes prior to this podcast, you may recall her famous Remember the Ladies letter, which she wrote to her husband John in 1776. In it, she says, In the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. It's not the right to vote that she's referring to. It's the concept of coverture. She's asking for the autonomy to have legal personhood as a wife. John's response was flippant, to say the least. Look, he's my favorite founding father, mostly because he's the only one that hasn't horribly disappointed me by being a hypocrite as many times as, say, Thomas Jefferson. But even I can admit his flaws. But despite his response, which was, as to your extraordinary code of laws, I cannot but laugh. We have been told that our struggle has loosened the bands of government everywhere, but your letter was the first intimation that another tribe more numerous and powerful than all the rest were grown discontented. This is rather too coarse a compliment, but you are so saucy, I won't blot it out. 
However, he did seem to actually take her words to heart and consider the issue, which makes total sense as he clearly respected his wife's mental acuity and her advice on political issues. In May of 1776, he engaged in a debate over the question of who had the right to vote with James Sullivan, a Massachusetts lawyer. Sullivan was concerned with the current requirements that only allowed landowners to vote. Adams' response is that men who were not landowners, as well as women, were too little acquainted with public affairs to form a right judgment and too dependent upon other men to have a will of their own. He also mentions that he sees women as having good judgment just as much as men who do not own property, but sees both groups as equally unsuitable to vote as a result of their dependence. Adams had a solution to the contradiction of declaring all equal, but not allowing all to vote. He wanted to turn the multitude into landowners, making them more independent, which is a sound idea, but of course it's highly complicated by the fact that women under coverture could not own property if they were married. Them sole, the state of being unmarried or widowed, would free a woman from that restriction, though, and in some of the new states, like New Jersey, women who owned property were allowed to vote all the way up until 1807. But we'll get into the history of women's suffrage in another episode, especially as some conservatives with podcasts have been seriously saying that they think women having the vote is a terrible idea and they'd like to do away with it. The concept of coverture would become the first major concern of the women's rights movement. John Neal, one of the earliest lecturers on women's rights in American history, attacked coverture in a speech in the 1840s, saying, How long shall women be rendered by law incapable of acquiring, holding, or transmitting property, except under special conditions like the slave? Lucy Stone, an American abolitionist and suffragist, criticized coverture, saying, The common law of marriage gives custody of the wife's person to her husband so that he has a right to her even against herself. Coverture protected men who abused their wives and relegated women to a position where they had no right to deny their husband anything, even sex. Marital rape was considered absolutely legal in the United States and many other countries until, you guessed it, the 1970s. It also prevented women who did manage to find work, whether inside or outside the home, from having the right to their own wages, and in some cases it prevented their ability to work at all. In 1869, Myra Bradwell was refused permission to practice as a lawyer in Illinois, specifically because of coverture. The legal reality of coverture and social expectations created a society in which women were very much infantilized, and it continued the long history of men being given access to the public sphere while women were relegated to the private sphere inside the home. However, even with this public versus private divide, the realities of life in a new country would begin to upset the power balance, specifically the notion of Republican motherhood, which began to take hold at the end of the 18th century. As a new nation, many fear that the ideals of American republicanism would be lost without conscious effort. Therefore, it became women's responsibility to foster Republican values in her children. And as a side note, when I say Republican here, it's the one with the small r, not meaning the GOP. Republican as in by the people, for the people. Just wanted to clarify because that always trips up my students in my intro to American history class. Here I'd like to read from Linda Kerber's Women of the Republic on the topic of Republican motherhood. In the years of the early republic, a consensus developed around the idea that a mother committed to the service of her family and to the state might serve a political purpose. Those who opposed women in politics had to meet the proposal that women could and should play a political role through the raising of a patriotic child. The Republican mother was to encourage in her sons civic interest and participation. She was to educate her children and guide them in the paths of morality and virtue. But she was not to tell her male relatives for whom to vote. She was a citizen, but not really a constituent. 
Western political theory, even during the Enlightenment, had only occasionally contemplated the role of women in the civic culture. It had habitually considered women only in domestic relationships, only as wives and mothers. A political community that accepted women as political actors would have to eliminate the Rousseauistic assumptions that the world of women is separate from the empire of men. The ideology of Republican motherhood seemed to accomplish what the Enlightenment had not by identifying the intersection of the woman's private domain and the polis. So women became players in the political sphere, despite the best intention of the law and social order to keep them out of it. In fact, women began to get more education themselves because how could they be expected to be in charge of their son's education without first having an education themselves? The literacy rate for women and girls in the middle class during the early 19th century would increase immensely. And when you can read, you can write. And women began to do just that. They wrote fiction. They wrote nonfiction. Women like Margaret Fuller would write books like Women in the 19th Century, one of the first major feminist works in the United States. Women's education also began to grant them more freedom outside the home, as demand for school teachers greatly outstripped the availability of male teachers at the time. Of course, women were not paid the same as men for this job. Superintendents around the country openly bragged about the productivity of female teachers, who worked for less than half of the income of men. For instance, in 1838, Connecticut paid $14.50 a month to male teachers. They only paid $5.75 a month to women. And of course, again, with the concept of coverture still in place, women who taught and were married had no right to their own income. Their finances were still controlled by their husbands. Also, married women were not usually encouraged to work in the first place. Most of these jobs were for unmarried women, or at least women without children. Women would be strongly encouraged to quit or simply fired when they became married or pregnant. And now we've gone a bit off topic here, but my point is that women had little autonomy during this period, and that did not change throughout the later 19th century. The cult of domesticity was an ideal of womanhood that becomes prominent during the late 18th and early 19th centuries. This value system offered a distinct image of femininity that placed women within the homes and as the center of their families. True women, according to this idea, were supposed to possess four cardinal virtues, piety, purity, domesticity, and submissiveness. True women were supposed to devote themselves to unpaid domestic labor and refrain from paid market-oriented work. Consequently, by 1890, only 4.5% of all married women were gainfully employed, compared to 40.5% of single women. Legal precedent only served to further enforce this issue, with Supreme Court rulings such as Mueller v. Oregon in 1908 being based on the assumption that women's primary role was that of mother and wife, and that women's non-domestic work should not be allowed to interfere with their primary function. As a result, women's working hours were limited and night work for women was prohibited, essentially costing many female workers their jobs and excluding them from many occupations. And specifically, women were defined as having the right to have maternal gender roles, which necessitated them losing some of their other liberties. Here's a few quotes from that case that I find particularly galling. Woman has always been dependent upon man. Yeah, because you made her be. In the struggle for subsistence, she is not an equal competitor with her brother. Yeah, because you won't let her be. Though limitations upon personal and contractual rights may be removed by legislation, there is that in her disposition and habits of life which will operate against a full assertion of those rights. So you're saying that there doesn't need to be a legal restriction? She would just do this anyway of her own choice? Then why do we have a legal restriction? I, that doesn't make any sense. 
The limitations which this statute places upon her contractual powers, upon her right to agree with her employer as to the time she shall labor, are not imposed solely for her benefit, but also largely for the benefit of all. A good part of this was keeping women out of the workforce so that men could have those jobs. The cult of domesticity privatized women's options for work, for education, for voicing opinions, or for supporting reform. Arguments of significant biological differences between the sexes, and often of female inferiority, by the way, led to pronouncements that women were incapable of effectively participating in the realms of politics, commerce, or public service. And despite all of this, women during the 19th century and early 20th century would still mobilize to work for abolition and women's suffrage, eventually winning major victories on both fronts. But both of those topics are something that we'll cover later in their own episodes. But even with the gaining of the vote, women were not on equal levels with men in American society. Those systemic issues continue throughout the 20th century, with women being relegated to pink-collar jobs, even after serving in traditionally male jobs like bomb-making, factory work, spy work, and even serving in the military during World War I and World War II. As men returned to the labor force after World War II ended, many women were reluctant to give up the independence that work outside the home had granted them. A conservative cultural backlash began to build, with proponents encouraging women to return to the home and to more traditional domestic gender roles so that men could reassume the role of financial provider and family protector, the natural order. In 1947, Ferdinand Lumberg and Dr. Mariana Farnham wrote a book entitled Modern Women, The Lost Sex, which argued that contemporary women in very large numbers are psychologically disordered and that their disorder is having terrible social and personal effects involving men in all departments of their lives as well as women. The book became a national bestseller and contributed to both the return to domesticity in the post-World War II decade and the psychoanalytic anti-feminist movement. During this period, we also see a very strong push back towards that divide between public and private spheres from the 19th century. Childcare experts, television, magazines, and politicians all propagated the notion that women should leave the work world and return home. According to many psychiatrists, caring for children was not simply a task, it was meant to be the central focus of women's lives. For the women who did remain in the employment sector, there was an increase in occupational segregation between the sexes. For the most part, they worked as secretaries, teachers, nurses, and waitresses, service and nurturing jobs that were considered feminine, and also happened to pay less. Most of these pink-collar jobs also offered very few possibilities for career advancement. In the 1950s, the cult of domesticity and the true woman from the Victorian era gave way to the new ideology of the ideal woman. The creation of the ideal woman gave a clear picture to women of what they were supposed to emulate as their proper gender role in society. In effect, women began to construct their identities around this image. Popular since the 1950s, this tenacious stereotype conjures mythic images of cultural icons. June Cleaver, Donna Reed, Harriet Nelson, the quintessential white middle-class housewives, the ones who stay at home to rear children, clean the house, and bake cookies. A high school home economics textbook from 1954 gave guides on how to be a good wife. Have a good meal on the table, make yourself look nice, make sure the house is clean and the children well-behaved and dressed nicely. Fluff his pillows, take off his shoes, speak with soothing tones, don't complain, make everything about his comfort. I don't know about you, but that sounds more like the job of a servant, not a wife. Also from 1954, the Victorial Medical Guide speaks about what traits a man wants in a wife. Men placed considerable emphasis on wanting a wife that was a good cook and housekeeper, had good looks, and had a desire for home life and children. 
there was tremendous societal pressure for women to get a ring on their finger. The U.S. marriage rate was at an all-time high, and couples were tying the knot, on average, younger than ever before. Getting married right out of high school or while still in college was considered the norm. If a woman wasn't engaged or married by her early 20s, she was in danger of becoming an old maid. Not only did most married women walk down the aisle by age 19, they also tended to start families right away, and they usually had more children than their mother's or grandmother's generation had before them. But for all the glamour of the 1950s in television, the June Cleavers and Donna Reeds, life was far from ideal. I'll likely do another episode on women's lives during this period, which will delve into this in more detail. But suffice to say that the traditional home of the 1950s was not as ideal as the sitcoms make it look. They still had domestic violence, both physical and verbal. And because of the way the system was rigged, women had few options to leave their abusive spouses. New York State did not list beating as a cruel and inhumane treatment that was grounds for divorce until 1966, and even then the plaintiff had to establish that a sufficient number of beatings had taken place. You'd think that one would be all it would take, but apparently not. And in 1964, a study on wife beating essentially claimed that it was therapeutic for men. No, really. Here's a quote. The periods of violent behavior by the husband, the doctors observed, served to release him momentarily from his anxiety about his ineffectiveness as a man while giving his wife apparent masochistic gratification and helping probably to deal with the guilt arising from the intense hostility expressed in her controlling, castrating behavior. So in other words, if you nag your husband too much and make him feel emasculated, then you had that slap coming, honey. Even if they could get a divorce, what happened then? There were no shelters for domestic abuse until the late 1960s. The education gap between men and women had widened significantly in the 1950s, with only 27% of bachelor's degrees going to women in 1950. And even if they had a degree, what jobs were available? Would they be able to ever see their children again, or would their husband get custody? The ability to get a credit card or a mortgage was severely curtailed by discrimination by credit card companies and banks. So, of course, no-fault divorce isn't the only thing standing between women in the 21st century and the loss of legal autonomy. There's a whole host of laws which help to legalize our right to autonomy as women in America. But it's not promising that one of the major successes of women's autonomy, Roe v. Wade, was overturned just last year. And almost immediately on the wings of that, we had more than a few American conservatives making comments about overturning landmark Supreme Court cases that made it illegal to ban birth control. And now we have conservative talking heads like Steven Crowder saying things like this. And no, this was not uh, my choice. My then wife decided that she didn't want to be married anymore. And in the state of Texas, that is completely permitted. Ohio Republican Senate candidate J.D. Vance said that divorce is a great trick pulled by the sexual revolution and that even when a marriage is violent, divorce isn't the best thing for kids. Michael Knowles, best known for his brief stint in a gay student film in college and his fervent wish to exterminate transgenderism from society, yeah, I think you might be projecting a little bit there, buddy, says that things have only gotten worse in America since we got no-fault divorce. The state of California decided to make it easier to get divorced in only in 1969, but for the vast majority of our country's history, for the vast majority of our civilization's history, Divorce was very difficult to obtain when it was not outright illegal. But we see the weakening of marriage through no-fault divorce. This is a very bad turn of events. Do you think society has gotten much better since the social and sexual revolutions of the 1960s? Or has it gotten a little bit worse? 
To answer his question, I feel like the world has definitely become a better place since the sexual revolution, but I'm saying that as a woman, and a queer woman at that, and I do understand how it might feel less good for a mediocre white man. It's a lot harder to get by as a mediocre white man today than it was in the 1950s. I feel for you, Michael. I really do. The problem is that it's not just a bunch of mediocre white men with podcasts that are angry about this and wishing that they could control women more. If I could dismiss them as easily as that one character in Knives Out, you know, the one. He's an alt-right troll dipshit. But unfortunately, that's just not the case. In 2022, the Texas Republican Party made ending no-fault divorce a literal part of its platform, the same state where the judge who recently halted the FDA approval of Mifepristone once wrote in the National Catholic Register that Reagan's signing of the Family Law Act of 1969 caused the first pillar to fall when it came to marriage law. So how did we get here? To this moment, where the all-too-recent victories for women's autonomy are under threat almost constantly. While conservative backlash against women, or any minority really, fighting for or obtaining their rights and autonomy is nothing new. They've been playing this game with our legal rights for a long time, and overturning no-fault divorce would just be one more way to turn the clock back to what they think was the golden age of America. Though at this point, I'm not sure if they think that was 1950 or 1850. Either way, I think I speak for all sane people when I say, I'm not here for it. You can pry my no-fault divorce from my cold, dead hands. Thank you for tuning in to hear me bitch about history. I know this was a long episode. What can I say? I get fired up about women's history and feminism. I guess the title of the podcast should have been a clue about that for you. Just a reminder, if you want updates on all new episodes, you can bookmark podpage.com slash bitchy dash history for continuously updated list of episodes of the show, or just subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or whatever RSS feed-based podcast app you prefer. On Monday, we'll be back with a new History 101 episode, this one focused on the history of the Puritans, who they were, and why they came to the New World. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with your family and friends and join the podcast discord where you can ask questions and request topics for future episodes. You can also follow me on TikTok and contribute to my tip jar or subscribe to support the podcast monthly through Spotify. Thank you for listening to Bitchy History.